Hello and welcome to Life Perspectives, the podcast from Cumberland Lodge. Episodes will be presented by Cumberland Lodge Fellows, past and present, and shared during 2022 to mark the 75th anniversary of the Cumberland Lodge charity. This episode looks at experiences of discrimination in recruitment through the lens of academic research, bringing together Samir Sueda Metwali and Dr. Valentina Dastasio. Samir is a quantitative social scientist at the University of Bristol, and Valentina is an assistant professor at Utrecht University, with research interests in the field of social stratification with a focus on labour market inequalities. I now hand you over to Samir and Valentina. Valentina, thank you so much for joining me on uh, on this podcast. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation on, of course, the, the Muslim and ethnic penalties in the British and European labour markets. But before we get into that, there are some quick-fire questions which are asked of, of all our guests in this podcast series. So uh, there are three. I'll start with the first. Uh, what were you doing at my age? And so we're talking about about four years ago. So I was actually relocating from Britain to the Netherlands. Um, at that time, uh, between 2017 and 2018, I was... Um, uh, basically uh, moving back to the Netherlands after my uh, postdoc position had finished in uh, in Oxford, um, and so I guess I was looking for a for a house, which is uh, always a nightmare in the Netherlands, as it is in the UK, to be honest. Uh, so so relocating. Uh, so if you were, I mean, this sort of uh, ties in, but if you then go back. Well, I guess if you, when you were my age, who would you have wanted to interview? So you had, you said you had just finished your postdoc, so just you know, and you finished your PhD. Who would you have liked to sort of converse with? Um, I guess for a long time, my answer would have been nobody. I didn't want to interview anybody because I was really shy and afraid of talking to people, especially in this sort of international context. I remember as an international student when I moved to the Netherlands first, I, I was like very afraid of these classes where you're supposed to be inter- in, interacting with others and keep asking questions. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, and a friend of mine was, was really um, always uh, joking that, would, that I would run away after classes because I didn't want to interact with anybody. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, so, so we're doubly grateful uh, myself <laughs> and the college for you, for you doing it. But that's, that's, that's super interesting like that, that you say that in terms of because – you know, a lot of your work, as you said, revolves around uh, or had revolved around interviewing employers. So having having to speak and putting yourself out there. So it's interesting that 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 progression. Um, I'm not sure the final question makes it any easier, to be honest. Um, but what 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 is something that most people don't don't know about you? Um, when I was a child that I was often playing this game that I made up, I was basically uh, playing uh, the part of the admin officer of my municipality. <laughs> and I was really, like, like, my task was basically keeping the paperwork of all these uh, applications that these fictional people would do, like, for example, um, um, reno- um, renovating, renewing your ID card. And I was the admin officer, and I had to keep notes, and I had all these uh, notebooks where I was keeping track of who was coming to my office, I was very excited about the fact that my dad could give me this uh, sort of carbon paper so that I would have three copies for each ID card that I was renewing. I, I, rem- I remember carbon, carbon paper. Yeah, I remember the first time I came across, I came across that. 
um, in in less um, it was a, it was a it was a less fun time in terms of that you were playing. But I'm I'm so curious. So how old were you? Because that seems like quite a structured game to play. Sort of admin. You know, reviewing. Yeah, ideas. so I was in primary school, and oh. I kept doing it for for many years. So I guess the game evolved over right. the years, and it became more and more complex. <laughs> that's 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 truly interesting. And now your secret is um, is open to everybody who chooses into this <laughs> podcast series. Um, okay, so that was uh, yeah, that was uh, that was really. I was not expecting that. Um, but before we get into the details now and discuss sort of your research and, and findings on the topic of this ethnic and of these ethnic and religious penalties in the British and European labor markets, what I wanted to do, what I think it would be quite helpful, is perhaps if we just get a quick sort of big picture overview of your academic background, perhaps trajectory, how did you end up doing research in this area? Was it a natural progression for your PhD? Because mm-hmm. as you know, this is sort of my area and mine wasn't quite linear. Um, in terms of, you know, I'm a mature student, as you as you um, as you hinted to sort of earlier, and so and I did I came from different backgrounds. So I studied economics and then political philosophy and then social policy, and then I came to to this. Everything was so there was a, a trajectory of being uh, social equality underneath. But I'm curious about your uh, trajectory, perhaps. Yeah, so my trajectory wasn't very linear either. Um, I'm I started as a um, as a bachelor student in communication science, and uh, I was at the University of Milan doing my bachelor studies. and And then later on, after my bachelor studies, I mean, sometimes things just happen by chance. At the time, you had to uh, basically sign in person uh, the grades that you that you got. So now it's all uh, recorded digitally. But I had to go to a secretary and. and uh, and sign, and I remember that um, I was sitting in the waiting room, and I saw this poster: European Studies, a Master in Belgium, in Brussels. And I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> and so I signed up. I got a scholarship, and I ended up in Belgium. And then while there, I started looking around for options to continue. And um, and I think this comes more from my family. My my father was a trade unionist, and always uh, he was a, a local organizer, and he always kind of talked about labor-related issues, inequalities in organizations. So I think the passion for this area of study comes from there, from conversation we had at the family table. Um, And so I started looking for something um, in that area. And, you know, the reason why I ended up in Amsterdam is also a bit by chance. Um, um, There was a network of universities of which uh, my own previous one in Milan was part, and another one was the University of Amsterdam. And so I thought, oh, Amsterdam, why not? So it was a bit unplanned, uh, maybe unfocused. I, I guess I had a, a some, somewhat of a direction, but I ended up there a bit also, uh, yeah, by chance. Um, and then um, this project was also uh, basically using um, experimental design. So we were um, uh, simulating a hiring decision, uh, hiring process with, with employees in different contexts. And I became fascinated with experimental designs more in general. So um, uh, I was reading a lot about uh, field experiments and uh, trying to use these kind of experimental designs to to understand discrimination. So this was always on the back of my mind. And then at some point there was this opening for a a postdoc in in Oxford um, linked to a project that really was um, aiming to uh, better understand discrimination and, and how it happens um, in an international perspective, so comparing different countries. 
uh, and I was really drawn to the project. And so I was really happy that I could take part in that in that project. Basically, what we tried to do in this project was to um, understand whether employers uh, are discriminating in their hiring decisions. And this type of discrimination does not necessarily need to be um, explicit. Uh, the outcome might be discriminatory. So some people might have um, unequal uh, chances to, to get the job. And the, the, this type of experiments basically try to, um, to, to, to create applications that are the same. So people have the same skills, they have the same CVs, they write the same uh, statements on their on their cover letters, in their cover letters, but then they differ because of one particular characteristic. So for example, um, one is a man, the other one is a woman, or one has an ethnic uh, minority background and the other one doesn't, or one has a particular religious background and the other one doesn't. So um, by, by randomly varying this type of characteristics, then we are in the position to compare people who are exactly the same, except for that particular characteristic. Right. So then if one of them gets the job and the other one doesn't, this is a sign of possible discrimination by employees. Right. And that was really what you did, the, the, the GEM product, so the uh, Growth Equal Opportunities Migration and, and Markets uh, project at, uh, at Oxford. And really how we, you, know, you and I got to connect because, uh, uh, because of the work there. Looking at the UK, where, where my research is focused, where I look at ethnic and re- particularly religious penalties, I remember first reading the literature and then some things were not so surprising, but perhaps some findings were. And I'll, I can share those afterwards. But what, we're, what to you was perhaps a, a, a surprising finding related to the, to the UK specifically? And just put this in context, I'm, I'm specifically referring to the UK as, you know, considered quite a liberal labor market. We've had a series of you know, race relations acts and that's evolved and been amended from 65 onwards. And obviously 2010, we have the Equalities Act. So what to you was, you know, you did this cross comparison and, and a comparative work. What was the most surprising finding perhaps for you for looking at the UK? Yeah, so maybe just as a starting point, this was a uh, a large collaborative project with many people, many academics from different countries. And I think at the very beginning, we were all um, interested in the question, what is the country where discrimination is worse um, out of these five countries we are studying? So we had the UK, we had Norway, Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands. And, um, and my look at the UK is from an outsider perspective, because I moved there, so I was a uh, European migrant, and um, uh, so it's also important, maybe in in your in generating your expectations to 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 have in mind the position you start from. So that was my position, like a European migrants moving around Europe, but just moved to the UK. Um, and I think I, my expectation was that the level of discrimination we would find there would be medium to low comparing uh, in comparison with the other countries um, for different reasons. And it's a very dynamic and flexible labor market. Um, it's also a context where um, there is a, a well-established legislation um, on uh, uh, to prevent discrimination, to prevent workplace discrimination. So also by international standards, um, it's one of the leading examples in, in, legis- in setting legislation to prevent discrimination. 
Um, there's also this kind of um, uh, belief, strong belief in meritocracy, in skills. In uh, uh, so, so my expectation would, was was that it would not be the country with the highest level of this, with the strongest level level of discrimination. And this is exactly like we we found the opposite. So we found actually that the UK was the most discriminatory context. Um, yeah. So this was was certainly surprising. So. To me, at least, and um, and these experiments um, are are appealing in a way for uh, for this type of discussion because they give us a a, a metric a, a, a result that is pretty intuitive. So basically, they give they give us what is known as the discrimination ratio, which tell us basically um, what is the effort that ethnic minorities need to put compared to uh, members of ethnic majority groups of, of non minority groups in this case, compared to the white British population, uh, in order to be invited for um, for a job. And we have to always remember that we keep everything constant. So these are um, job applicants that are exactly the same, uh, have exactly the same skills and qualifications, uh, but then one comes from the ethnic minority group. And then we saw that um, in the UK, this ratio was 1.6, meaning that on average, so meaning that members of minority groups had to apply 60% as often to be invited. Uh, in other countries, it was 0.2 to 0.3, so about 20 to 30% uh, more application. And then something also interesting of the, of the GEM project was the fact that we could focus on many different immigrant groups uh, and ethnic minority groups. So, so that's one thing that, 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 that's quite interesting, I was going to say, because you have Norway, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK and Spain, yeah. and you have you know, because of a uh, history of, of, of colonialism, you have different migration patterns from various, um, from uh, those who identify as ethnic minorities. So for, for the UK, we have large uh, or relatively large in terms of from an ethnic minority perspective, South Asian background. And I use this term very loosely in terms of not, not it being a homogenous group, but for example, uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian, then we've obviously had uh, Caribbean, uh, again, from, from, from the history of, of the British Empire. But the migration to Germany, for example, won't be necessarily, uh-huh. it'll be more, for example, from, uh, from migrants from, from Turkey. For want of a better word, for the skeptics, how reliable or how could you say, okay, well, so yeah, we were able to compare? Yeah, so this was a, a nice challenge for us um, because, well, as you said, we have countries with very different um, histories of migration. And so um, this is also what made it a very large project because we wanted to have many groups for comparison, many immigrant groups for comparison. Uh, I'm saying immigrants, even though um, as a short end, but actually um, uh, the, the, the groups that we included were either second generation, so people born in the country where uh, we sent out our application, they had done all their education there, or what are known as the one and a half generation. So people who moved there, they were born elsewhere, elsewhere but they moved to the country when they were really young. Um, and we wanted to include many groups that uh, precisely to sort of reflect this heterogeneity of immigration in different contexts. And at the same time, we also wanted to be able to make comparison and not to compare apple with oranges. So then what we did was to include 
35 different uh, um, groups, uh, ethnic minority groups in all these countries. And this meant that we had to send out nearly 20,000 job applications. So we spent years just applying to jobs. And let me stress that we had ethical approval to do this. Right, <laughs> but um, but basically, we had to send out very many applications, mm-hmm. and what we tried to do was, on the one hand, to have um, large variations, so to include many groups from different regions of the world, um, and this allowed us to then uh, compare which groups would be most at a, at a disadvantage. Um, and at the same time, we also tried to um, oversample those groups that would be. Um, more interesting in a given country simply because they are groups that have a longer history of migration there, they are more known, they are more present. So we try to create these sort of parallels between countries that share a similar history of migration. So, yeah, it's, it's quite, you, you sort of hinted to that, it took, you know, years to, to send out applications. It's quite a, quite a large um, experimental uh, design and, and, and research project. But if we could just tease out, the UK has mm-hmm. a relatively high rate, but then we, we can break it down, right? So we can look at ethnic um, discriminations versus uh, religious uh, discrimination. Yeah. And this research shows that, you know, and, and you know, this research, does, the religious discrimination is mainly anti-Muslim discrimination. Mm-hmm. So looking at the UK, I know you said you found quite a high rate, but if you dichotomize and versus ethnic versus religious mm-hmm. um, for you know to, to paraphrase uh, Professor Tariq Modun and Professor Nabil's paper the black penalty and the Muslim penalty mm-hmm. how, how do those manifest themselves in the UK and then perhaps we can look at across other countries yeah um, yeah so something interesting that we find in the UK is a very um, a very sharp difference um, groups in their level of discrimination. So we find overall, on average, that groups are discriminated against um, by, by employers, if they, if, if um, uh, ethnic minority groups, but there is large variation depending on um, uh, where uh, these job applicants come from. And this variation is, is very steep in the UK, steeper than in some other countries we had in the GEM project. It is hard to say whether this is a only a Muslim penalty, or if it's only a black penalty, or if it's a combination of the two, um, just with the based on the UK case, because um, we really need a lot of cases to be able to tease out um, one type of discrimination from the other. Something interesting that we did for the for this project, for the Gem project, was to um, um, try to focus on specific groups, um, so for example, Nigerians, and then randomly vary their religion. So we would apply with a Nigerian name and sometimes explicitly mention that we had a Christian affiliation, we, we had some Christian background. Um, and sometimes we would say that we had Muslim background. The way we did this, um, I mean, uh, it's always hard to signal religion in a job application and Typically in field experiments, the way um, in which this is done is by including some information about volunteer work. And this volunteer work takes place at an organization that has some religious connotation. So that's also the strategy that we used. So we applied to a job. uh, And this job was a 
for example, a, a job as a cook. And sometimes we would say um, we did our volunteer work in this community center um, and we use a Christian connotation in the name of the community center. So, for example, I did volunteer work at a mosque versus someone did it at... Yeah, or at a Muslim community center, a Christian community center. Right. And that's how you signaled to to the employer. Um, But then the applicant was always from the same country. So it was always a Nigerian applicant. We Mm. did the same um, for all those countries where multiple religions are are present. And then um, what we show is that there is a level of discrimination that is purely related to um, ethnicity or, in general, um, the name. So the fact of having a foreign name, um, which in this, it could sound Nigerian or it could sound from another country. One might also argue whether employers can really distinguish one type of name from the other, but let's say foreign sounding name. So there is that level of discrimination. And then on top of that, there is a Muslim penalty, but there is no Christian penalty. That's what we show. Um, so that's the way in which we tried to tease out um, religious discrimination. And we, sh- we show basically an anti-Muslim bias, but not a Christian bias. That's what we found. So to repeat to, and, and to, to, to be clear, the idea then that controlling for everything else and by control, it means trying to, trying to have the same values for two uh, hypothetical people. Even if you hold the country of origin, someone who is Muslim will face a ethnic penalty and in addition, a Muslim yes. penalty relative to someone who isn't. Yes. And that you found in the UK as well. Well, that we found across contexts and right. um, we couldn't really split the analysis country by country because sure. then we would have too few observations to really do this type of analysis. So where does, because uh, you you did this research, um, unless I'm mistaken, you said uh, uh, during Brexit. Mm-hmm. So there's two questions here then. So actually, let me... Um, how, how does it compare to, to the UK, to, to other countries? I'm, I'm thinking specifically Germany, um, Norway, yeah, the Netherlands. How how did the results um, differ? Yeah, so we do find in general a higher level of discrimination in the UK um, compared to countries like Germany, Spain. Uh, Norway is a context where discrimination is pretty high as well. Um, and in that context, that this context is interesting because we oversample the Pakistani group in both uh, contexts, so both in the UK and in Norway. Um, so we have British applicants from a Pakistani background and also um, uh, Norwegian applicants with a Pakistani background. And then um, we show that there is a rather similar um, discrimination in the two contexts. So it's large in both. Um, whereas in countries like uh, Germany, um, we tend to find a lower level of discrimination. And this is not only in our GEM project, but it's a more general finding of a lower level of discrimination in, in German-speaking context, which is interesting. And one of the possible explanations could be that um, in this context, applying for a job is in itself a job because you have to apply with so much detail and information. So t- um, typically you are required to submit also a copy of all your certificates. Um, you really give the employers a lot of information that might make them less reluctant. So if um, discrimination is due to stereotyping and to um, if, if employers are reluctant to hire um, somebody from, a, from an ethnic minority, then 
here the argument is that providing them with these copies of certificates sort of make them feel um, less relaxed. Tying it into the, you know, the first question, I remember coming across the, this finding. But one thing that really stood out for me in terms of Germany, which, you know, because of our legislation in the UK here, we don't have, is although we find this finding, for example, discrimination is lower in Germany relative to the UK, there are, for example, in Germany, quite apparent uh, anti-Muslim uh, legislation, not in the whole of the country, but, you know, in, in eight, out of the, eight out of the 16 states, a woman who wears the hijab, for example, which is the, the, the Muslim woman who wears the, the veil, uh, can't apply to certain jobs where they represent the state. In, in, I think, five of those, there's the exception, you know, for Christian symbols. And in some of them, there's also, I believe, in, in three of them, there are also uh, exceptions for uh, Jewish symbols. So the kippah. So, for example, you would be able to wear a Christian symbol, so a nun, for example, let's say, or you would be and you would be able to wear the kippah, but you can't apply to certain jobs or work in certain professions, like being a teacher, for example, um, in these states, if you wear specifically the, uh, the the hijab. So I wonder the extent to which those studies can capture that element of structural, uh, structural discrimination, structural racism, that if, if you don't apply for this job or if someone doesn't apply for those jobs in their research design. Yeah, so um, I think the underlying issue here is that when we run this type of field experiments, we are always creating a labor supply. Um, and this might not necessarily reflect um, the real labor supply. So who applies to jobs and how? Um, now you're mentioning the example of, um, for example, countries where um, it is not possible to wear visible religious symbols in, for, for certain positions. One could also argue that maybe for strategic reasons, because we know that discrimination happens, certain members of minority groups might downplay these religious symbols in their application. So they might do this while feeling very uncomfortably because there's always an aspect of uh, lack of authenticity or um, like and some sort of it's, it's, it might be uncomfortable to have to, to, to manage your identity differently for, for professional reasons. Now, the, yeah, the question is that the way in which we apply for jobs not necessarily reflect the real way in which people apply for jobs. So I think it's important to keep the two distinct. Um, what we can show with field experiments is that all else equal. So if we um, create applicants that are uh, equally qualified, uh, but they only differ by name or they only differ by religion, they do um, receive a different treatment. Mm-hmm. So that's all we can show. Um, and one could say that uh, that a situation uh, like a country where, for example, a picture is is required in the job application could provide um, could be conducive to more discrimination because uh, people have to visibly show their um, their identities, um, and so they might be recognized as ethnic minority, especially if these are visible ethnic minorities. Um, but even in countries that don't, uh, like the UK, for example, we see that discrimination is still very high. So mm-hmm. the name itself um, already puts people in different piles of applications. Right, right. And 
So if, if, if there's a one take point is, although the suggestion is it could help to offer more information through the application process, it is also possible that that increased information, such as a photo, for instance, mm-hmm. could induce further discrimination, which, but also that, you know, I take from that, that, for example, the relatively lower um, penalty that we see in Germany could be a conservative one that's actually, you know, uh, because of other activities, for example, that people might be doing um, to to shield themselves or not applying to certain jobs or changing their behavior. Yeah, I think we can only test the the level of discrimination that we would observe if mm-hmm. people indeed would apply right. in a certain way. I, I've had these conversations in 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 my years so when when presenting my work or in conferences. So I, I certainly yeah, I do appreciate your point that it's important to stress that you know, an ethnic penalty does not necessarily imply discrimination uh, or religious discrimination, but that's what field studies try try and get at. But you know the point I I always make when I'm when I'm having these conversations is to people who um, perhaps suggest an alternative overview or quell or put some doubt on on whether discrimination is at play is that the research that I do or or any piece of research is just part of a much broader puzzle Uh and so you know I do for example some quant research you do these field experiments someone else someone else and it's quite you know flabbergasting that over you know at least from the UK perspective which I know a bit better you know we have this research from the 1960s till now and it's the patterns are consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few, relatively speaking, uh, that suggest discrimination has somehow, uh, to, to paraphrase, uh, Satnam Viridi miraculously disappeared. But I think that's that's an important point in terms of to, to look at it uh, more broadly within a scholarship that spans you know, over 50 years. Yeah. And I, it reminds me of the paper, because I remember that was quite surprising, that you wrote with, uh, with Anthony Heath, um, where I think the bottom line finding was basically since the nineteen since the late nineteen sixties in the UK to twenty nineteen, um, discrimination against uh, those who identify as black and South Asians has just has not changed. And I yeah, remember, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was a very sobering result. And yeah. um, what we tried to do is to put together the evidence from all these different field experiments. So using the same methodology, but over the years, and we had quite many. Um, being conducted in the UK because the UK was one of the pi- was a pioneer in in introducing this methodology. So we could then compare all these different estimates <clears throat> across studies, and then we see basically a flat line. Uh, there is no change for more than half a century, mm-hmm. um, and this is very um, depressing. Um, also, considering that over this year there has been a change in legislation, there is much more attention to. Um, the topic of diversity and inclusion, of workplace inclusion. Um, has been, uh, there have been many, many um, legislation, there have been uh, pieces of legislation, there's been um, European directives on this topic, and we show that nothing has changed, even if we zoom in on specific groups, so we can do this for the, for the Caribbean groups and the South Asians, and we see there is no change. I mean, the common thread through all this is trying to tackle down to it's difficult to measure exactly discrimination as people uh-huh. you know, want it to get 100 percent convincing. But as you mentioned, you, you sort of you look at different potential avenues or causal mechanisms, you control for them, whether it's country, whether it's uh, jobs, uh, whether it's occupational class. And as we said, you know, you look through a, a trend, it starts to get a bit, you know, 
too much of a coincidence that, that these things haven't changed. There's one point I wanted to quickly, so we've expanded on the on the ethnic and looked at different. One um, finding, I remember reading this paper and being, it's probably one of my favorite ones um, in terms of the Muslim by default or Muslim by, by association, I can't remember. But it's basically, you even, you broke down the Muslim penalty in a way that was are you racialized as a Muslim or do you identify as Muslim? And I think that ties into your the point in your cover letter. And your finding for the UK was really interesting in terms of um, in terms of actually being associated, right, being racialized rather than actually saying you're Muslim is is related to to a higher penalty. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that and perhaps uh, broader broader across Europe. Yeah, so what we tried to do um, in that study was to know whether basically um, just having a name that could be associated with Islam, um, with uh, Muslim-majority countries, could already be a penalty in and of itself, um, or if um, there is something more to it so that explicitly mentioning um, some sort of religious affiliation in the way I, I explained before, so by... Um, uh, volunteer work um, with, a, with a, a Muslim connotation, whether that was the, the source of the penalty. And of course, one doesn't exclude the other, so both of them could go on at the same time, could in- increase the disadvantage, basically. And then indeed, we show that um, in the UK and in the other, the other countries that had the same patterns were uh, Norway and, and the Netherlands too, the simple fact of having a name that is associated with Muslim-majority countries, so without even explicitly mentioning in the application anything about religion was enough to um, create a strong, to lead to a strong disadvantage. So there was already like um, a discrimination present for being what we call Muslim by default. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think it's been, yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, thank you so much for this, uh, Valentina. It's been, um, it's been an interesting discussion. Uh, I hope uh, I hope the listeners will enjoy. It. But for me personally, it's been a really wonderful opportunity to to discuss papers with you, the author, after having engaged <laughs> with your work. Um, thank you for the, for the invitation. <laughs> no, of course. But uh, thank you, uh, thank you very much uh, for your time. You're welcome. Thanks. If you'd like to keep up to date with life perspectives, you can follow us on major podcasting platforms by searching for Cumberland Lodge. You can also keep up to date with all the work of Cumberland Lodge on Twitter, Facebook and on the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Thank you once again to Samir and Valentina for joining us and thanks for listening. Goodbye.